Good afternoon. <laughs> My name is Nora Peel, and I'm the Deputy Director of the Boston Book Festival. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for what's sure to be a memorable conversation. I'd like to thank our presenting partner, 90.9 WBUR, for their support of the Boston Book Festival. For my intro to this particular session, I tried working in a bunch of double entendres, but none of them really rose to the occasion. So instead, I decided to take a more direct approach. This year, we're asking for your support to keep this festival thriving and free to all. Dare I say, we ain't too proud to beg. This year, we've given you a handy-dandy donations envelope tucked right into your program guide. It also doubles as a survey, which you can fill out for a chance to win an iPad mini. And it's also your opportunity to help us cover all the expenses that go along with presenting a free festival like the BBF. Did you know that today it's costing us almost $6,000 per venue for audiovisual support and that we have more than a dozen venues? I'll let you do the math on that one. If you appreciate lighting and sound, or if you just like being able to hear what the authors are saying today, please consider slipping in a few dollars before dropping your envelope in the survey boxes on your way out today. Or maybe you'd like to get more involved by becoming a member or a donor at a higher level. You can get a great new mug or tote bag or lots of other perks in exchange. Just stop by our big tent in Copley Square when you get a chance today. And now I'm pleased to introduce our host for today's session. Nancy Bauer is a professor at Tufts University and the author most recently of How to Do Things with Pornography. Please join me in welcoming Nancy. Thank you, everyone. It's amazing to us to see so many people out here to talk about these wonderful books that my fellow panelists have written. Um, I actually just asked somebody to sneak out and see how many people were here, if there were more than five people. <laughs> and they came back and said, so far, 154. So we're ex really thrilled. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. I want to remind you that after the session, we will be um, signing books just outside um, the sanctuary, all four of us. And we would love to meet you at that time. Um, I'm very, very pleased and honored to um, be introducing our authors and our session. I want to start by talking a little bit about Raymond Carver's story, the story on which the title of this uh, session is based, namely, of course, what we talk about when we talk about love. Um, in that story, as you will recall, or if you haven't read it, I'll be explaining it, there are four people, two heterosexual couples, sitting not in a sanctuary, but around a kitchen table on a sunny afternoon. Uh, they're drinking gin. Incredibly, this is water. Uh, <laughs> when I just picked it up and drunk it a couple of seconds ago, I thought, uh-oh, I wonder what everybody's thinking there. Um, and while, the, while they're sitting around that kitchen table, they, as Carver puts it, uh, get on the subject of love. And at the beginning of that conversation, one of the men, whose name is Mel, proposes that real love is nothing less than spiritual love. That philosophical claim sounds plausible to us and to the characters. It passes the loftiness test, it rhymes with our moral values, and it it's, uh, seems to express our personal aspirations. But Terry, the wife of the guy, Mel, who said this, responds to Mel by talking about Ed, her former boyfriend, who, quote, loved me so much he tried to kill me. 
which turns out to be literally true. So she turns her husband's claim on its head. Uh, what real love is, is uh, loving so much somebody so much you want to kill them. Uh, by the end of the conversation about love, the sun has gone down. Everyone around the table is drunk. They are still and they are speechless. They are like the interlocutors, um, I will say, as a philosopher, um, in Plato's early writings, whose dialogues with Socrates have revealed to them the shallowness of their unexamined convictions concerning the things that they care most about. Rachel Hills, Lauren Holmes, and Dylan Landis, each in her own way, also reveals to us, sometimes in ways that hurt or provoke us, the inadequacy of seductive but false everyday understandings of sex that get bandied about in mainstream cultural discourse. And so today, we're going to talk both about the distorted uh, picture that we get from um, mainstream, for example, women's magazines and mainstream sort of highbrow magazines and newspapers, I would put it, and the challenges um, that confront uh, these authors um, as they try to um, deepen and trouble those sort of cliched understandings of how things are. Um, uh, so let me introduce the panelists. What I'm going to do is start off by asking each of them a question, and then you guys, we've discussed this, will just jump in, or I'll jump in, and we'll see where things go. Uh, Rachel Holmes is a journalist, a blogger, an advice columnist, and she is the author of the book The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality, which is her first book. Um, Lauren Holmes is a writer of short fiction. Uh, her debut story collection, which she'll be discussing today, has the wonderful title, Barbara the Slut and Other People. Mm. And Dylan Landis is an O. Henry Prize-winning short story writer and the author of Rainy Royal, a novel that follows on the heels of a story collection that revisits the lives of the characters that she introduced in her, in a collection that she called, that's called Normal People Don't Live Lives Like This. So this uh, novel is looking at these same characters in a, in a different way. Um, I'm going to start with Rachel. We'll talk for about 20, 25 minutes, and then uh, please be prepared with questions. We're, we're very eager to take them from you. Um, Rachel, in your book, which is based on a huge number of conversations with young people in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia. Mm -hmm, that's, yep, that's right. Pretty mm -hmm. much... Uh, uh, lots and lots of Anglophone people, at least. Um, you challenge a lot of our baseline contemporary assumptions about sex. So can you identify for us some of the main assumptions that you have in mind, or another way of putting the question, what is the eponymous sex myth? So the sex myth refers not to any kind of singular sex myth relating to gender, so ideas of how men and women should behave, or does it, ideas around what's desirable, or ideas around what good sex is, even though that's covered all throughout the book. The sex myth is the term that I coined to describe the kind of loftiness, to use a word that you described that you used earlier, the kind of loftiness that's around sex in our culture and how this is used as a kind of regulatory force. So we live in a culture that tells us that sex is, uh, that, you know, how we have sex, who we have sex with, how often we do it, it reveals something very kind of deep and important about who we are and how we're valued, that it's the key to our desirability, uh, 
that it tells you how well your intimate relationships are faring, that it tells you whether someone is morally upstanding or perverted, or whether they're kind of modern and enlightened or, you know, repressed prudes. And my argument is that that is a lot of weight to give to sex, and it means that when our individual experiences of sex don't align with what we think they should be, so whether that's because we are gay or because we're a virgin after the age of 20 or so, or because we have what culture tells us is too much sex, that that kind of hits us on a deeper emotional kind of psychological place than it would otherwise. Right, so the reader, and I'm thinking especially young women, um, I mean, even I, as I was, as an old woman, as I was reading this book, was like, was thinking, wow, this is really important to measure the distance between, or even reveal to people that they have expectations that are based on certain norms that seem to be, and those expectations are more important for many young people than many other kinds of expectations they have in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And that's because of the sex myth. But yeah, so we're given this kind of singular monolithic story of how sex should look. And of course, it looks many, many, many different ways in reality. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Lauren, um, most of your stories center on really believable, complex young women. There's one story that's narrated by a man, but most are either about or narrated by women. Um, they're um, centering on these young women or, or girls um, who are often misunderstood, um, sometimes to the point of not being able to make themselves legible to themselves. Um, and perhaps because of what Rachel is calling the sex myth. And I was particularly taken by uh, one of the stories, Desert Hearts. Um, This story is told in the first person by a young woman named Brenda. She's a newly minted lawyer who moves to San Francisco with her newly minted lawyer fiancé. But unlike him, she finds herself reluctant to ply her chosen trade. She just finds herself not applying for lawyer jobs. And instead, she sort of drifts into the situation of working in a sex toy shop that is for lesbians. Um, And what happens in the end of that story, I think, really defies our expectations. Can you talk about Brenda and where she ends up or what you were doing in that story? Sure. Well, she, so she gets this job by saying that she's a lesbian um, and she runs into some resistance from the owner of um, the shop who feels like something's off with her and she looks straight and, uh, and she questions whether she wants her to work there, but she can't quite catch her in, in saying that she's not gay. So, um, so she continues working, Brenda continues working at the store, um, and she ends up, the, you know, the owner keeps trying to catch her, and, and at one point she says, you know, we're having a party for another, uh, another person who works at the store, bring your girlfriend, who Brenda has said that, that she has. And um, so Brenda is kind of rushing to try to find you know, and really, you know, any woman, but preferably a woman that fits the description that she's given of her fake, <laughs> fake girlfriend, um, to bring with her to this party. Um, and at the last minute, she ends up sort of circuitously solving the problem by bringing another random woman who doesn't fit this description and making it look like she's cheating on her fake girlfriend with this other woman. Um, And she actually finds this other woman at the sex toy store. It's a woman that's in a group of of women that come in, um, usually after they've been drinking, to kind of play with with the things in the store and just goof around. Um, So she asks this woman, and she's been, you know, she's been flirting with this woman, and... um, 
they end up going to the party together and kind of, you know, having a good time and connecting. And um, and Brenda has been feeling disconnected from her fiance, and that kind of leads her to. Um, you know, when this woman touches her, I mean, she just touches her on the back, but she just, you know, feels it from her head to her toe, and it's just this feeling that she hasn't had, um, you know, from her fiance or any anyone else in a while. So she, um, I mean, part of part of what I was interested in exploring in that story, I mean, certainly, you know, sexuality and, um, you know, what it means to pretend to be something you're not, but also the idea of lying about yourself and what it means to sort of get confused where, you know, where the lying ends and where the truth starts and, you know, what is the real truth about yourself. So I think, you know, her lying in that way makes her start to question, you know, what is what is true about herself and all these assumptions that, that she's made. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, It's really astonishing. By the end of the story, I thought to myself that it's not clear that we know. It's not conventional story that you feel like, oh, she's discovered that she's a lesbian now, so we're done. Instead, what she discovers, if I can say this, at the very end of the story is that she really wants to hug the dog she just adopted at a shelter. That part's clear. <laughs> um, and the rest of it's still um, as complicated as life is um, mm. in a really interesting way. Um, yeah, great. Thank you. Dylan, um, Rainy Royal, the eponymous title character of your book, is a young girl who's growing up in the New York City in the 1970s. When I was reading this book, I was like, oh, this girl's about two years older than I am. So I was, and I grew up right outside New York City. So I was, I, as I was telling Dylan earlier, I really uh, found the description of those times incredibly gripping and, and interesting. So she's uh, living in a freewheeling Greenwich Village townhouse that's presided over by her father, who's a jazz musician, um, his friend and companion, not that companion sounds like it's sexual, his friend, Gordy, um, uh, a man named Gordy, and an ever-changing cast of the father's uh, jazz students and groupies. Um, and you track Rainey's experiences with her friends Tina and Leah, who are characters you've been writing about for a while, um, from their early teenage years until they're into their 20s. So the stories, which can be each read profitably individually, but also form a narrative arc as these girls grow up, um, spreads over a number of years. Um, it becomes clear um, relatively early in the novel that the father's friend, Gordy, is molesting Rainey, and that the father, Howard, clearly knows that this is going on. And at one point, Rainey is also raped by one of Howard's students. Um, but these experiences do not have a cliched effect on Rainey, while the seriousness of them and the, 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 the badness of them is very clear. So can you talk about how Rainey incorporates these experiences and moves on from them? And maybe if you want to talk about something also in the same neighborhood that happens um, with Tina. She has a taboo sexual experience and how she processes it. Yes, happily. Um, one reason that the responses are not cliché is that the sexual experiences are not cliché. They're actually very ambiguous. Um, does Howard, her father, know that his best friend, who's lived in the townhouse since Rainey was two, is going into her room at night? You felt that he did. Yeah. Some readers feel that he doesn't. It's not clear. It's, it's not easy to put your finger on. Is Gordy molesting her? He goes in, he strokes her hair, he rubs her back. His fingers stray into that area of the side of her body where she 
she thinks about states meeting on a gas station map, and she wonders if Tina, if Tina feels like her body has states meeting like that, and if, if other people feel that way about their bodies, and she fakes sleep. And, and, and once in a blue moon, Gordy will say to her, I know you're awake, and she doesn't move. And so what he's doing is not cliche molestation, and what she, so her response is not a cliche response. And I, I, I don't like writing about um, sex in any kind of a, a cliche way. I mean, I, it's funny, I remember when I lived in New Orleans years and years and years ago, I rented a French Quarter apartment from a, an elder, well, older Mississippi couple that bred dogs. And I remember, I can't do a southern accent, forgive me, but I remember the, the man sitting back and, and talking about his dog's mating and saying, you know, when the male part meets the female part. And, and I'm, you know, when I write about sex, I don't want the male part to meet the female part. I want to know what these people are thinking and what they're doing and not what they're doing, you know, what they're thinking and what they're doing that's revealing their their character and their their problems and where their minds are going and what they're doing that's not cliche at all one of the things i was thinking about and it is interesting because i did think howard knew on some level even though he refused to own the knowing of it is the way that i would put it though i see now from what you're saying that it definitely is ambiguous there's no question about it and that was my reading into it there is also the experience she has she talks about once she and, and Gordy kind of almost went all the way in the park, and it's, that's another place where it's very ambiguous. Um, so it was wrong for me to say molesting, but the way I was thinking of it was it is by cultural standards deemed a kind of molestation, um, even though um, you're absolutely right. What's interesting is the way that you talk about it and, um, and the way that you go out of your way to say, you know, these are not ordinary, like the cliched places that you would touch if you were in our normal understanding of what molestation is. Um, but I wanted to also ask you, uh, as the story goes on, Rainey carries, clearly somehow clear, carries this experience with her, these experiences with her. And what's really wonderful is the way that they are not in a cliched way weighing on her while they're still there. Can you talk about the challenges of having Rainey grow up with this history and, and continuing on in a way that works? Well, she has this dual nature. I mean, there is, there is what we would today call a rape. But we didn't have that language when I was growing up in the early 70s. There was no such thing as date rape. There was almost no such thing as rape, honestly, unless... We just didn't have language for this. I think the only word we ever had was gross. Um, between, you know, when girlfriends were talking. Um, even between adults and young girls, there was no language for that. It just happened. That was the early 70s in New York. And um, when Rainey gets overpowered in her bed by one of her father's acolytes, as these young musicians are called, um, she does storm. And by the way, I don't use sexual language for that. I, I didn't want to. I, I used a line that says she feels like pieces of her body might be falling off, like turrets and bell towers from a castle. I just didn't want to talk about parts. Um, 
she goes to her father and demands that he throw this acolyte out of the house, and he refuses. He says, you know, I think what you're feeling might be called regret. Mm. (laughs) You still hear that today. (laughs) But Rainey's way of carrying this with her, in a way, is a sex myth that she creates for herself, which is that she's got tremendous sexual power, um, that she can reduce men to their knees. She's very hypersexual when she's, you know, 14, 15, she and her friend Tina play this game at school that they call the private game, which is that they sit in a very seductive way and try to make the male teachers break out into a sweat. Um, one of the things I'd like to have all of you comment on, perhaps in conversation as things go, or you can break into what each other is talking about, is how the difficulty of writing about sex. In my own book, where I'm mostly talking about hookup culture and pornography, it's hard even to know, do you use the names of body parts? Do you use slang terms or common colloquial terms? Or do you describe things in sort of medical ways? Or, and how the effects of using those different kinds of language um, and how much to say and how much not to say. I'm going to, again, start with Rachel, since your whole book is oh, talking about, talk <laughs> about sex. Um, how, it's... You know, I, I think of those, I think there's a, there's an award that's given away each year to the writer that does the worst description of a sex scene. <laughs> um, and those are normal, those are usually given away to fiction writers. And I feel like in some ways, as a non-fiction writer, I, I almost escape or elide that kind of problem. Uh, because the way that I'm telling, I, so as you, as Nancy hinted out earlier, I spoke to a couple of hundred people and their stories are intertwined with the theory and then with the ideas through the book. So there are real people's stories being told. But I think because my object in telling those stories is not to turn people on, as often sex scenes seem to be designed to do, though not in these guys' books either, um, that for me, I, I guess I focus on the person and who they are and their experiences and their thoughts and their emotions. And um, even though it's a book about sex, in some ways it feels not very physical to me. Mm. It does seem to me that you do sometimes, like you decide to talk in colloquial terms or use, you know, the terms that people would use in ordinary speech about what different kinds of sex acts are and other times. Yeah. You'll use words like intercourse. That's true. So actually, it's funny you say that, because I remember, I can't remember if this ended up in the final draft of the book or not, because I wrote so many drafts, but I was talking about a study that came out in the US in around 2000 and 2010 or so, uh, from the Kinsey Institute, and it was looking at what people define as being sex versus not being sex. So most people count intercourse, to use that kind of technical dry term, as being sex, and oral sex, some people do, some people don't. But I I don't know if I used the awkward term manual stimulation at some point, (laughs) because I just didn't, it just didn't feel right when I was inside that more academic philosophical voice to go, hand jobs, which is what I personally would want to say. And then I I would, if I was chatting, I'd say lady hand job. Um, (laughs) But it just doesn't work within that particular voice in the book. So it can be really challenging. You're right. How about you guys? Um, I mean, for me, it's so interesting since the book has come out. It's like 
all anyone wants to talk about is sex. And I feel like I can't complain about that because I titled the book Barbara the Slut. But at the same time, it's just such an interesting thing to sort of unpack my feelings about that and sort of how much the book is about sex and how much it isn't and the way that I treated sex um, in writing the book. But I felt like my aim was really to represent sex as a normal, balanced part of life in the way that it it actually is. And I was thinking um, when I was reading your book about uh, there's a the character in Desert Hearts, she talked about having um, sex with her boyfriend for the second time since they've moved to San Francisco, and she's worried, you know, she's worried that, that when um, she has kids, they'll be able to say that they had sex <laughs> twice, once for each of them, and, and that was it, and she's worried that maybe that's going to be true. Um, so I was thinking about that, about sort of what we, the perception of how much other people are having sex and how much sex they're not having uh, and how that's represented in that story. But I mean, I just wanted to have that be represented, um, you know, as a balanced uh, part of life. Um, but I think in, you know, in some literature, it's just skipped over. It's kind of like, and then they went to bed and then they woke up the next morning and it's like, who knows what happened in the, in the meantime. <laughs> um, and then in others, it's kind of like a one-handed read, like, you know, there's plenty of parts and all the steps are described and it's like, it's, it is supposed to be titillating and, and supposed to turn people on. Um, and that wasn't really what I was going for either. Um, but I think someone just asked me in an interview, what's it like to be a woman who writes about sex? And I'm like, well, are there men who write about sex? Like, is it, you know, if a man writes probably the same number of words that I do about sex or the same percentage of words that I do about sex, I think they're just a regular writer. <laughs> so I don't know. It's an interesting... You can see that in the response to Girls, um, the TV show as well. Like to me, and I, I talk about this in the final chapter of my book, that's not really a show about sex. It's yeah. a show about young women kind of forging their way in life and trying to figure out who they are. And one of the things I loved about the first season of that show in particular, and I think your book is kind of similar, is that sex is just this ordinary part of life and something that's happening in the background rather than the kind of the driving force of the characters. The sex is just there. Except the perception of that show is like, this is a show about sex. All these people are naked all the time. And it's become more so a show about sex over the seasons, but particularly at the beginning, it was interesting that all the hype around it was this is a show about sex, but actually it was just a show that contained sex. This is very true of your story, Barbara the Slut, the title story, in which Barbara is somebody who's, you know, has no, has no issues about going out and having sex, but she's called a slut by other people, but at the same time she's absolutely brilliant, she's going to Princeton. Do you want to talk a little more about that story? Sure, yeah. I mean, so she's, she has this... Uh, really, just to summarize it quickly, she has this really sort of empowered view of, of sex where she knows what she wants, which is she wants to have this kind of no-strings-attached sex with the guys in her high school, and she's had this complicated relationship in the past with one guy, so she decides that the solution to her problem, and I mean, she's a high school student, so the solution to her problem is not the most, you know, mature necessarily, but she decides that she can only have sex with one guy um, once with each guy um, to to minimize any future problems with with these guys, so she um, she kind of picks and chooses based on her standards, you know, who she'd like to sleep with, and then she limits it to to one time per guy. Um, but she's I don't know, she's was an interesting character to sort of write and conceive of over time. Is um, just yeah, I don't know. I ended up. I feel like I'm complimenting myself, but I ended up admiring her. Like she's so much more aware of sexuality and how sexuality works and what she wants personally than I was in high school. One interviewer was like, that's basically you, Barbara the Slut. And I was like, it's not though. I mean, not that I, not that I would be ashamed to be that at all, but she is just so 
much more clear-headed and clear-eyed about what she wants and what she's looking for and how to avoid what she perceives as the pitfalls of of high school sex. Right. And other than this, and what's interesting about her too, is that other than, than, than this um, uh, plan that she has for how to get sexual satisfaction without encountering the kind of problems she had with this boyfriend, she in some ways is as, as straight and narrow as they come. Um, and she's a, she's a good yeah. person in every conceivable way. And this decision seems to fit with it at the same time that it can be surprising for the reader to see these two behaviors come together so seamlessly in this one character. It's wonderful. Um, Dylan, you've already talked a little bit about how deliberately you... Um, you you craft the sex uh, the sexual moments in your book and how you I also think craft the way that those moments um, are are lingering in the reader's mind through all the all the way through. But um, I know you have some things to say about writing about sex and you've thought about this a lot. And I'm wondering if you could comment. I I do um, think about it a lot. I when I was studying writing in Los Angeles with a novelist named Jim Crusoe there was an assignment he liked to give, which is give your character a task and then let the task go wrong. And the reason for that is when, when the task goes, well, first work is interesting, so that's the task. And when it goes wrong, your character has to then react, and that tells you more about the character. And I think of sex as a task, really, and letting it go wrong is interesting. You know, before this panel, I was, I was rereading a number of, of books just to see how various authors handle it. And I was rereading Purity by Jonathan Franzen. And the first, I think, four sex scenes in that book are interrupted, like rudely. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you really get to see, like, boy, why did that happen? And how is the, what are you learning about the character? You're learning quite a lot. Um, and I, I really think the master of this is Toni Morrison in The Bluest Eye. Um, she, she has, I think, three major, or maybe only, sex scenes in, in her book. Two are in the, from the point of view of two very, very different women. They're short. Um, if, if you read the, just the sex scenes, you would know that these were vastly different women. And then the third is from the point of view of a father who rapes his 12-year-old daughter. And, um, and it has to be there. You would not know this man if you didn't read this scene. Um, and it's only as graphic as it needs to be, and it's more about her leg than anything else. It's real it's really remarkable. You know, crawling on all fours toward her, he raised his hand and caught the foot in an upward stroke. Pecola lost her balance and was about to careen to the floor. Charlie raised his other hand to her hips to save her from falling. He put his head down and nibbled at the back of her leg. It, it goes on. It's just about his experience of her the fragility of her flesh on her leg. But you know what he ends up doing to her. Um, I, that to me is real language about sex. Oscar Wilde said something like, all, all sex is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Um, let's talk about that idea about sex being power because, I, Rachel, especially in your book, um, it wields, the sex myth wields a kind of power, but part of the, pow- the myth... Uh, is that sex is powerful and very um, 
and having it the exact right number of times in the right number of ways with the right people is the key to having a reasonable life. Um, yeah. Talk about sex and power. Yeah, so that was a lot of what, that's one of the key questions that motivated me to write the book in the first place. Um, you, at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about uh, women's magazines and TV shows and things like that, and I was certainly... Uh, you know, a passionate consumer of those things in my youth. And I've also been a contributor to women's mags and um, things like that. And um, I think so often in that kind of mainstream journalism or popular culture uh, kind of scenario, sex is spoken about um, as this kind of biological force that reveals the truth of our culture, reveals the truth of the person having it, and reveals the truth of our culture um, as it stands at that particular time. And what I wanted to do was kind of take apart those stories um, to understand where, to understand them as cultural constructions in and of themselves and to look at how they serve as, how those stories serve as sources of power in their own right. So they serve as sources of power because even if they might appear on the surface to be celebrating sex, so if there's an article saying sex is essential to your health or um, uh, if you have sex is essential to maintaining your marriage, that could seem like a really celebratory kind of affirming story that says, that says sex is actually good. And it kind of does do that, but at the same time, it also serves as a kind of force of power because it's telling us the story of how sex is supposed to be. So it's not actually freeing us to engage in sex on whatever our own terms might be. It's also very prescriptive. I find it interesting as a philosopher, thinking about these matters, about what philosophers might call the phenomenology of absorbing those kinds of stories. So one of the things I speak with my students about, I'm teaching my uh, intro to feminist philosophy class this term is that, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, there were psychiatrists, psychoanalysts who were telling women that when a penis is inserted in a vagina, that means an orgasm happens in the woman. And if the woman wasn't experiencing the orgasm, it was because she was neurotic. So something in her brain was preventing her from feeling pleasure. So what this meant, of course, was that, and the cliche I use is, you know, if your husband just, you know, gets into bed after you, while you're already asleep and rolls over on you and, and does it, um, and you don't have an orgasm, there's something wrong with you. And when you think about living and about how that kind of sex myth also would um, change your whole perception of the experience at it colors, it's not, it, it, it disempowers you unless you're really an extraordinary person to say something like, well, you know, wait a minute. Um, and I think uh, consciousness raising in the 60s and 70s um, from, in, among feminists in part comes out of people um, retelling this, their stories where they sort of talk about how they how they actually felt as though it might not be path of, you know. Yeah, a, a and I think that that's, that's still so important. It's one of the yeah. most exciting things that I've had the opportunity to do since my book, The Sex Myth, was published. Uh, just, uh, just a couple of days ago, I've done a lot this week, so I'm like, earlier this week, two days ago, I was at Northeastern University here in Boston doing a workshop with a bunch of students, and it was very much a kind of consciousness-raising thing where we talked about what did they feel like they were supposed to be doing when it came to sex? What did they feel like they were not supposed to be doing. I'm really kind of laying out and interrogating those invisible rules. And the students found it really helpful, so it was amazing. And that's what I think the power also of fiction can be, yeah. which is to show the, the responses of characters to what happens to them in ways that break on the norms or um, in ways that we don't expect, so that in some ways frees you to um, really 
imagine that you could do that as well, that you don't have to simply um, go according to what the culture tells you the meaning of your experience might be. Mm. Um, okay. Um, I think it's time for us to open up our conversation to the audience. We all have many, many lights in our eyes. Are people yeah. going to just come up to the microphone? Is that? Yes. Okay. So please, um, uh, we welcome you to ask questions. Uh, hi. <laughs> um, I was, we're at a talk about sex and literature, and I was wondering if this was going to come up, but it didn't, so I apologize, because I have to bring it up. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> what are you guys' thoughts on it? I haven't actually read it. I, I own a copy of the book, but I have never been able to bring myself to read it, because whenever I go to, there's always a more interesting book on my shelf that I could possibly <laughs> read instead. Um, but I have seen the movie, and I think that it is at once. I did find it a titillating movie. I can say that in its favor. Um, but it was also um, a very, I guess, kind of sexist movie in a lot of ways. Like, it, as, as people have been talking about, it does show a kind of abusive relationship, um, not because it's a relationship that features BDSM, but because uh, the lead character, Christian Grey, kind of stalks Anastasia and doesn't really let her have a free choice as to whether she wants to be in the relationship. Have either of you guys read it? No? <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, I don't have any problem with sex writing that is meant to titillate at all, or pornography. I feel like it, it, it fills a need that, that just exists. My problem is with literary fiction where all of a sudden there's a sex scene gratuitously in there that... Um, there's a there's a book on on uh, called the joy of writing sex. I think it's by Elizabeth Bennett, and she says something like, "Good sex writing isn't writing about good sex; it's good writing about sex." Um, I actually have read it. Um, <laughs> Yay! Uh, I read it because I always get asked questions about this kind of thing um, when I give talks about my book. Um, about the work I've done on pornography and hookup culture. And the, to me, the thing that was interesting about it is that a central and really interesting um, feature of BDSM, which I actually think is critical to the conversation about um, um, sex on college campuses these days, um, which is usually not talked about, is that BDSM like real BDSM, usually starts with a conversation. I mean, in, in Fifty Shades of Grey, there are contracts that are read 12 days in advance and pondered, um, or there are conversations. But really, real BDSM, people sort of agree. This is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. Here's how we will, I will indicate if I don't want it to happen anymore. And it doesn't interfere with the sexual satisfy, sexually satisfying nature of the encounter. Um, and one of the things that's happening on college's campus now, when we talk about consenting um, to sex, affirmative consent, in which uh, somebody um, that you're having sex with must be asked about every stage of the process um, in order for it to count as a consensual sex act by the college's standards. Um, that can actually be really sexy and really an, a, a really affirming and um, helpful part of the encounter that does that actually increases the pleasure that people have. It's rather than the other way around. And so, what I don't like about Fifty Shades of Grey is that it sort of distorts what that process is all about in a way that irritates me. Plus, it's so stupid. And I think it's like. <laughs> 
I think it's a great point that you make that one of the things that is really great about, um, I guess, kind of less normative sexual practices, so things like BDSM or polyamory, is when people are engaging in those practices, they actually talk about what they want their relationship to look like or what they want their sexual encounter yep. to look like. Yeah. Good question. Who else? We just see these shadows. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, uh, this question is for Lauren. Um, one of my favorite stories in your book was My Humans, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your um, choice to sort of see this relationship through the eyes of the couple's dog. I'm sorry, I can't hear very well in that way. Just... See the couple oh, I'm the sorry. Through, the, through the eyes of their dog. Okay. I'm also very short, so sorry. <laughs> sorry, no, it's just the acoustics and then your mouth is blocked by the thing. Yeah. So, um, no, that's fine. Uh, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, that was such an interesting, I mean, that story started out as sort of a like a defiant thing in uh you know, just my mentors that I was working with and people that I was working with were kind of like, you can't write a story from the perspective of a dog. And I was like, okay, well, watch me. Um, <laughs> so, but I think, but it ended up being something I think more interesting than that, which is that that dog, the way that that dog perceives the relationship between its two humans. So these two humans, um, for anybody who hasn't read it, it was probably most of you, uh, the, they adopt this dog and they have this relationship that seems to be leading toward marriage and then they have this um, case of infidelity um, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to get past this. And I think the dog really takes that in stride um, in a way that ended up being really interesting for me because when I started writing that story, I was 25 and I still at that point thought that getting cheated on was the worst thing that, that could happen to you in your whole life. And it turns out that's not actually true. <laughs> there are worse things than getting cheated on. Um, and it's also something that, you know, can be worked past in, in some situations with, you know, open communication and, um, you know, a, a general working on, on fixing that the relationship on the whole, not just cheating or um, a betrayal. Uh, but, it's, but it was interesting, by the time I was finishing that story, I was 30 um, and had come to the conclusion that cheating is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Um, and that dog ended up kind of representing my adult views of cheating. Um, and, and the dog just kind of takes it in stride and, and has really her own agenda, which involves um, getting good things to eat and getting <laughs> as close to pa as possible to the owner's bed. Um, and so when the cheating happens um, and um, the both owners aren't in the bed anymore, she now has this magical place of honor that she's been coveting this whole time of getting to sleep in the human um, spot of the bed. But yeah, is that, does that answer the question? <laughs> it's a fabulous story. Thanks. Next. Uh, I wanted to know if you could comment, uh, all of you, if you could comment how our relationship, uh, like humans and their relationship with this topic of sex or the subject of sex is evolving. Like I heard uh, at some point we, we were not even able to talk about sex. Now sex is used as a power or sex cells. How is it evolving in time to come for us, for the humans? Sorry, I missed the last part of that question. Did you guys have Can you just ask the last question again? 
I mean, you want us to talk about how writing about sex is evolving? No, not just writing about sex, but like uh, in your view, how our relationship with sex is evolving. Uh-huh. Like, our, I mean, like, for instance, at some point, we were not even able to talk about sex. But now we are able to talk about it, discuss it openly, and different people view it differently. How is it evolving in just your viewpoint? your viewpoint? Um, I sorry to always answer these questions first. I don't think it has evolved as much as as we think it has evolved. There's this tendency to talk about history and to talk about the history of sex in particular as though we have come from a place where historically we've been repressed and we haven't spoken about it at all. And now we're in this space where we speak about it so much that we're completely out of control. That's kind of the general media narrative. But The more I learn about history, the more I realize that actually people a century or two ago weren't necessarily so different to us. Um, So even the kinds of issues that I talk about in my book about these ideas around pleasure and good sex, it's not like people a century ago didn't care about that. And one of the philosophers that I drew upon in my book, Michel Foucault, kind of his central argument in the history of sexuality is that uh, back when he was writing in the 1970s, there was this idea that the Victorians were really prudish. And he's like, well, no, actually the Victorians spoke about sex all the time. They were talking about all the things that you shouldn't do, but they weren't just doing that to control you. They were doing it because it was really fun to talk about the things that you shouldn't do. Yeah, I think just going off that, when we were talking before about sex on um, college campuses um, and what you were just saying, I think One thing that was so interesting to me, I did uh, sexual health education on my college campus, um, and it took me several years, but I finally realized we were spending so much time talking about safe sex and consensual sex and all of these things that we weren't talking about good sex or how to get what you want or how to figure out what you want and ask for it. Um, So it was such an interesting thing to realize like we there's so much that we talk about and there's so much that we don't talk about one of the things that I realized as an adult that no one had ever said to me as a as a kid is like or a teenager is part of the sex talk that I got at least wasn't you know here's how to know if you're feeling it here's how to listen to your body here's how to use what you're hearing from your body to get things that you want and avoid things that you don't want um and so I think that's sort of a message that's lost in all the other things that we are talking about. I think that's that's really true. And in the work that I've done, um, I, I think people don't understand that there's... Um, they, they think, for example, one of the things I have a lot to say about uh, pornography in my book, which is called How to Do Things with Pornography, although most of it's not about pornography, but one of the things that happens, um, uh, my kids are between the ages of 19 and 24, and all of them have seen pornography from a very early age. All kids see pornography when they're 10 or 8 or, you know, they just do. They just come across it, even, no matter what you do, it just is all out there. There's the internet everywhere. And I think that has changed people's understanding our kids understanding because they see a lot of people having orgasms. They see a lot of people doing things that are pleasurable. You very rarely see porn where everybody goes, this is boring. This hurts. I hate this. Um, and you also, the aesthetic of porn has extended to, so for example, you know, about 15 years ago, a lot of young women felt that part of your ordinary hygiene was to shave your vulva. You couldn't have hair. That was just outrageous. And I remember when women of my generation found this out, some women were saying to me, that can't be right. You must hear of, be hearing this wrong. But 
I think the expect the porn raises expectations in some ways that people will know what they want to have for sex and have good sex. I'm not saying porn is bad um, because it uh, degrades women or it represents a kind of violence against women, although that may be true. I'm putting that issue to the side. But I do think it has kind of changed people's... Um, um, it, it makes people sort of uh, self-conscious about what they look like and how to comport themselves. I, I don't know if you guys agree with that or not. That what changed... The porn, the, the porn aesthetics that kids are exposed. These are the only graphic representations of sex that kids are seeing that are mostly meant for people to have sexual pleasure by viewing them. So they're not having the kind of awkward experiences or ambiguous or unusual or uh, confusing experiences that are described in all three of your books, or even the kind of um, experience that Barbara the Slut has, where she says, I know what I want, I do what I want. And those things, I think it's useful for them to get those kinds of messages or or de depictions of sex. I do think this makes them different from from even the younger people on this on our panel. Yeah, I think that I, th I think there's truth to what you're saying, um, and uh, definitely what you're saying about people who are in your children's age group having can, having seen porn. Consume is probably the wrong word. Having seen porn from a really young age, I saw that amongst the teenagers that I interviewed when I was doing the story. I don't. I wouldn't. I. Although I, th I just think our entire culture kind of communicates this idea of great expectations when it comes to sex. So I think that porn is more kind of one piece of that puzzle rather than the major source. I think so too, but I do that. think that there's a, it does, yeah, the aesthetic it's, has sort of changed. And it's also what, an obvious thing that people would turn to for sex education because it's the only place right. that if you want to know what, how sex works and what it looks like, even if it doesn't necessarily answer that question for you, it at least um, offers you some kind of visual that you can't get elsewhere. Right. I think at least in the U.S. we're still kind of prudish about how we talk about sex in other venues or mm. convey messages to kids in other venues that would, you know, we just sort of say, don't do it unless you want to. And if you do, use a condom. We mm -hmm. still say that. And there is some, <laughs> and porn is like, no, look how much fun it can be. And in order to have it, you better look like this. Um, or you better have a fetish that allows you to look like that or whatever. And then you see that in Hollywood movies, though, as well as, as some of the people that I interviewed commented. They said you would think yes. that if you were to watch movies or watch TV, that only incredibly stereotypically attractive people were A, attractive and B, able to have sex. Let's take um, another question. We have probably time for one or two more. Um, hello, this is a question for everyone. I'm wondering if in, in any of your books there are characters or people of color or um, of other or non-heterosexual people and how the honest of the sex myth weighs differently on these people and how these intersections come at play. Can you say the question again? Yeah, the question is um, whether there are people who are non-white, people of color, um, and um, people who are non-heterosexual, and how the intersection of people's identities that are other than white and straight um, bears on the kinds of things that we're talking about. I have a story in my first book. I mean, I, my characters are, are I, w I would have to say white, all white. Um, I, I, I don't know how to get inside I and mean, all the characters with I'd say one or two exceptions in my first book were female I couldn't write from inside the head of a man um, and I got over that for my second book but it's very very hard for me to put myself in in other mindsets and I just master that very 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 slowly but um, 
my character Leah loses her virginity to a, a really beautiful gay young man um, in my first book. I found that a really fascinating story to write. Um, well, from not so much from the perspective of writing about it, but um, I think one of the things that I've uh, been constantly discussing recently is the world's slut. I don't know why everybody wants to talk about that, but um, but I do think that that's. I mean, especially um, you know, I think there's so much discussion recently and needs to be more about what these words that we call people mean and how they differ, um, like, you know, what does it mean to be a white slut? What does it mean to, if you're a person of color and you're called a slut? Like, I, I think, you know, women of color's sexuality is treated very differently than white women's sexuality um, from the perspective of our culture, how we write about these things, how we portray these things in the media. Um, and so I think that is um, an interesting question. I don't don't quite know what to say about that, but I just think, I mean, the way uh, one of the, I definitely track all of these slut shamings in the media, and one that was so interesting to me was the slut shaming of Monet Davis, the baseball player. Um, she's a 13-year-old black girl, and she was called a slut on Twitter by a college-age white male. Um, and you know, there was a really interesting article um, in Salon about how our sexualization of black girls and of black women, but of black girls and, and children, um, and, you know, the question of why is a 13-year-old child being sexualized and how that does have to do with race. And you, you should talk about the... the People in the book, yeah. yeah. Um, there are queer people in the book and there are people of a variety of different races and ethnicities in the book as well. So there are black people, Asian people, Latino people, or Latino people as well, because that was gendered the way I put that there, um, and white people as well. Um, in terms of how the sex myth impacts those groups differently, um, on the sexuality axis, I think there were more commonalities in expectations and differences amongst the people that I interviewed. So whether people were gay, straight, bi, otherwise queer, often they were dealing with expectations around their own desirability and attractiveness. So there were a lot of fears around that. There were fears about being appropriately sexual. So um, not just being physically desirable, but behaving in what was seen to be a sexually desirable way, which whether they were a man or a woman or queer or straight, often I, it often kind of boiled down to sexual availability. Um, I think that the difference between queer people and straight people that I interviewed is that part of our kind of architecture of what it is to be appropriately sexual is to be heterosexual. So if I was talking to somebody who was queer, they were also dealing with um, issues around not being heterosexual, issues around heterosexuality being the kind of unmarked norm. Um, in terms of how race shaped the sex myth, that is a little harder for me to speak to. And I I, I kind of shy away from it because I have spoken to it sometimes in the past and I feel like when I do it kind of veers into cliche. Like I can't say Asian women responded to the sex myth like this because that is a diverse group of people and um, they're all going to be responding to it differently as individuals as well. But what I can say is that I think that 
particularly con cultural conversations around what it is to be a woman when it comes to sexuality and around the female ideal are often very much shaped around a white female ideal. So this idea that women are supposed to be passive and pure and the kind of angel of the house is a very white female ideal. And similarly, the kind of pop feminist ideal of the empowered woman who goes out and has sex with a lot of people is a kind of white ideal as well. So there are definitely differences in how women of different ethnicities respond to that but I, I know from having done a talk before someone Instagram she's like Rachel you shouldn't have said that and she's since become a fan of the book but I kind of took on her note she was a South Asian woman and I talked about the Asian women in my book and she's like that's not my experience so yeah don't want to generalize too much I think we have time for one more question I am a fan of the Lit Up Show podcast, and Lauren and Rachel, you were on it too, but um, I just listened to your episode, Lauren, and in it you talked about the word slut, which I know we just touched on, but how it there's so many negative connotations that come with that word and how it was sort of a... Um, like a, a, It was a definite choice for you to name your book, Barbara the Slut, and how... Um, also, the Amber Rose slut walks that just happened, and if women can reclaim that word, or if we even want to reclaim that word, since it's so negative in, in a way. Um, yeah, well, I actually just wrote about that in an interview, and the outtake that they took that was like, not all over Twitter, I'm not flattering myself, but it was, uh, the, the outtake that, was, that they were quoting from Twitter is me saying that um, I didn't think that Americans would stop shaming women for their sexuality in my lifetime. And I was like, mm, that's so negative. But I still believe that it's true because, you know, I just think in terms of reclaiming slut, in my mind, that can't happen until, you know, being a woman who is sexual is something to be proud of. And other terms that are reclaimed, you know, in that way, that they're reclaimed in a sense of pride of, you know, of being that thing is, is a good thing. And um, I just think, you know, slut means, basically means woman who has sex, which means that woman who has sex is this horrible insult that we call people. Um, and I just, I feel like it's a much deeper thing than just that word um, that has to do with how we shame female sexuality, how we shame women for their sexuality. Um, and I don't, I think it's there's so many positive representations of women who won't be ashamed and, and women who are uh, working toward that future, but it just... I don't know. If I think about it too much, it just seems so bleak. Um, yeah. <laughs> I understand. Thank you. <laughs> There's a nonfiction book that came out maybe 10 years ago called Slut, and I'm blanking out on the author's name. Leora Tannenbaum. Thank you. Leora, yes, um, Tannenbaum. And she said that you, a girl can get the reputation of being the school slut um, and be a virgin. Um, but you can, that reputation, once you get it, is unshakable, and the only way to escape it is to change schools. And I wrote a short story in which um, the school, I, I can't say it, you know, without the quotation marks, slut appears, and I got in touch with a couple of women I knew from, from high school and said, do you remember that girl? You know, what stories did you hear about her? And, you know, the stories were like, crazy and insulting and horrible, and I used them. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> uh, 
Um, I want to um, really thank our amazing authors, um, Dylan Landis, Lauren Holmes, and Rachel Hills. Um, and I want to remind you, yes. Thank you. And uh, I want to remind you that we, in a couple of minutes, will be signing books outside the sanctuary. Thank you all, too, for coming. Um, we really appreciate it.